Julie, is this a burr? It's cold morning? Is this a burr morning? Not for you? It's cold. Would you say it's colder in here? It's always cold in here? Wear your coat. Preferences. Today we're going to do a sermon on preferences. Now I don't prefer to do that. Uh, this morning, I, before I was leaving, I was, you know how, I don't know, when you get older, nostalgia kicks in at, the, at, at odd times. And as I was leaving, I had this, I realized how much I missed something I used to do when I was younger. And I just had a lot of joy as I was walking to the car, as I was ready to come to church this morning and worship the Lord. But I just, I couldn't help but think about the days when I used to crank call people. I loved it. I loved <laughs> Those were fun times, man. Like I miss, I miss the days when you could call someone up and they don't know who you are and just talk for a couple of minutes. And then Star 69 came out. Remember that? And then they, then you do it and then they call you right back and you'd answer the phone. Like, you just call here. Uh, and then they had a, a caller ID came up. Then you had to press star 67 to block your call. And then they would not answer the phone because it was a blocked number. And it ruined a pastime of mine that I really <laughs> felt like crank calling is, is, a, is a real talent. And I'll never forget, I used to actually listen to crank calls. One of the best ones I ever heard. Have, have y'all ever heard the church's chicken crank call? Y'all ever heard that? Greatest of all time, right? Top five. All right, so church's chicken. Y'all know what church's chicken is, right? Okay, it's a place that sells chicken that was called churches. For those of you, it's not that hard to figure out, right? <laughs> so, so this is what would happen. So the crank call, this is all you do. It, it would always, you never knew what was going to happen. You just heard the phone ring. So it would go like this. Church is chicken. How may I help you? Uh, what time is y'all service? <laughs> they said, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, ma'am? What time is y'all service? Um, no, ma'am, this is church's chicken. This is church's chicken. Well, don't the chicken belong to the church? He's <laughs> like, ma'am, no, 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 no. This is church's chicken. We sell chicken. Well, who's y'all pastor? <laughs> uh, but hold on, ma'am, hold on. They fumble around the phone, come back. Somebody else will come on. Hello? Yeah, who's y'all pastor? Uh, man, there's no pastor here. This is church's chicken. We sell chicken like, like Popeye's, like we sell chicken. Well, does the chicken belong to the church? Uh, ma'am, can I help you? I want to come in and sing a worship song. What time is y'all service? And this would go on for like 10 minutes. And then, <laughs> then the voice was like, baby, can I just pray for you, baby? And the person was so frustrated. They had no other trouble to be like, sure, go ahead. And the voice went, Lord, we pray for the chicken and the pastor and the worship service and the number five and, and the pie and the, and the sweet potatoes and all that to go with that play. Click. And I thought, man, I should have thought of that one. So if you are like me and you missed the good old days of crank calling, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to... This absolutely has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but <laughs> when you are the pastor and preacher, you can say what you want for a few minutes. So, 
We are returning back to the book of Romans. It's been about three or four years since we've been in this book. We are the red light, green light church. So what I mean by that is we start series, stop them and start them and stop them for, for reasons. But we don't just stop a series just to stop a series because we're tired. We stop if we feel like there's something that we need to address as a church, and we'll do that. I'll do that faithfully because if I think I'm hearing from the Lord, and we feel like we're hearing from the Lord, and we think it's pertinent. And then what we heard back from you all as we went through that series, it seemed like it was necessary to do that. And one, that's one of the challenges of going through a series is when you, and I think the best way to go through the Bible is to go through books of the Bible, to go through the Bible the way it was written, kind of word for word, line for line. You obviously don't hit every word. I mean, I, it's a rare occasion you're going to hear me do a, word, a series on the word the, you know, like the. I mean, when I say word for word, I don't mean every word is going to be a sermon, right? We will be here after Jesus came back trying to go through the Bible. So... But what I mean is going through the Bible, specifically the way it was written, it's their letters. They're written to particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. But because it's the word of God and we believe in Jesus, and we believe in God, then we, we take what was written to people some 2,000 years ago and we say this, is, this applies to us because if we're honest, you know, a lot of the things that are happening in our culture are no different than what has happened throughout the history of humanity. They're just different in terms of language, culture, technology. But the same sins, the same habits, the same patterns, the same ideas, the same ways that we try to go against God are the same. So I can read something that was written to a church 2,000 years ago and think, man, that's happening right now in our culture. And that's what makes the word of God the word of God. It's, it's timeless in the sense that we can benefit from it no matter who we are or where we are. And so we'll be using the word of God, which we call the Bible. We'll be using that until Jesus comes back or until we go to see him, obviously, before then. So in this, in this uh, series in Romans, we, we wanted to do this series because it is a very theological book. And I'm using that as sort of an adjective but theology, theology is just a study of God. So saying it's theological typically means it has a lot of hard things about the study of God, a lot of uh, things that are difficult to understand or what you would call clunky or dense. Or It's very much this kind of book. It's a, a book written to a church that was in a very strategic city. Rome was like New York City where it was just a lot of people coming in, a lot of people going out, and there was a church finally established in this city that wasn't established by Paul or another apostle, as far as we know. And so he's writing this letter. Paul is given the responsibility to write to the Gentiles primarily and explain to them why they need to believe in Jesus Christ. And Gentiles are just people who were not Jewish. But he always spoke to Jews as well about the same thing, because many people who were Jewish did not want to believe in Jesus Christ because they felt like they had Moses. And what Moses told them to do and how to live was how they were supposed to live. And they were waiting for the Messiah, but Jesus didn't act and look the way they thought he would act and look. And so he's writing this letter to explain significantly, and I think Paul took a lot of time to explain things that were very difficult and very theological because this is a strategic thing. If you can get this church 
to be solid in what it believes and inspire people to take what they believe and to tell others. You got people coming in and out, going back to different parts of the world. If they take their faith with them, then the gospel goes all over the place. So Paul writes this letter. This is not a church in a small city like Philippi or Philippians or Thessalonians, Thessalonica. These are, this is a huge opportunity, and Paul seizes the moment. Well, this church wasn't established by someone who was an apostle like Paul or Peter or James or any of them. And in A.D. 49, there was an argument, ongoing argument between Jews and Gentile, non-Jewish people who believed in Jesus about is Jesus the Messiah. There was this huge argument that was disrupting the city. So the emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, kicked them out, told them you have to leave. That was, it was their gentrification. And the Gentiles stayed there and were still believers in Jesus Christ. And then five years later, Claudius dies and the Jews come back to Rome. Rome is the most important city in the world at this time. They come back to Rome, but now there's a church established, and it's been five years without any Jewish influence. So they have their own ideas of theology. They have their own ideas about who the Jews are and sort of what place they serve. They have their own ideas about Christian liberty and how to apply the theology that they've gotten. But they haven't heard it yet from someone like Paul. So we'll find this out at the end of the book in Romans 16 as Paul starts to greet particular people that he sent to be a part of that church to help that church mature because it was a very strategic church. The location, if you know anything about real estate, it's location, location, location. None of you, none of us, unless there's something significantly wrong with you, are going to buy a house on a swamp. None of us would even go on vacation where something like that would occur. You choose where you go specifically. Location matters where you go. There's things you want to do when you get there. Location is important. Location is important when you buy a home because okay, you're thinking about where are the schools and how are the schools and what's the neighborhood like. And location is significant. So in this church, location is significant. And it's in this city, and Paul wants to address them. So what we're going to do today, we got to chapter 4 before we took a break and talked about some things that we felt like were necessary for us to talk with as a church Last week, I said we were going to do a review of Romans 1 through 4, and then I went back and looked at all the stuff we talked about through Romans 1 through 4 and felt like the Lord said, yeah, right. So what we're going to do is a review through chapters 1 and 2 because Romans is very dense. And if I did it, Romans 1 through 4, I could do it, but it would be at 30,000 feet. And then for people who haven't been here for a lot of those messages, you wouldn't get some of the things that are necessary to understand when we move forward. So we're going to do a review of Romans chapters 1 and 2 today. We're going to zoom in on some stuff. Some stuff we're going to sort of 10,000 feet. So that's the highest we'll go, 10,000 feet. We'll zoom into some stuff. All right, let's pray, and then let's jump into Romans 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 briefly. Father, thank you for your word, as was, you were just saying, and as Nahalia was reading from, and just those, that, that's, that narrative that he read from has been there for a long time. And many people have been instructed by that narrative alone, just like he did us, reminding us 
of the reality of who you are and what that means for us. And in a day and age where technology and an intellectual property, where a blog can have more authority than the Bible at times, or someone's tweet or Facebook post can get more likes and retweets and reposts than a scripture. It's easy to think that the Bible that we read is outdated, unnecessary, and in the most extreme cases, not even true. I don't know everyone in this room well enough to know where they stand on issues of the scriptures. But I do know that you've brought them here today. So, Father, I pray that whatever this review is, whatever is said today from your Bible, from your word, where there would be truth in it, at least enough truth in it, that you would arrest their, their hearts. They would find something that they identify with. I pray for those who this may be somewhat of a clunky way to understand it because we're going through two chapters today and hitting things and moving on quickly and not sitting in messages the way we typically would. But I pray that you would give them the grace to understand enough that they can think of how amazing you are as God. And I pray for those who may be here who may not even believe in you today. And some of this stuff may just sound like I'm, I may sound like I'm speaking a foreign language. I pray that if they came with someone, that you would give them the, the wisdom to ask, the humility to ask what do things mean, and that they would be able to understand and even come back in the next few weeks as we really get into your word in more closer detail. But all we have is your Bible. We don't look for hieroglyphics. We don't trust men's intellectual prowess. That's not how we live. We live by your spirit that guides us and your word that, that reveals to us your character and what we're supposed to do. So, Lord, protect us from being distracted, upset, and, and worried about all the things that are happening in the culture to the point where we don't. I'd rather be distracted by your word. Help us to be distracted by truth. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, beginning in Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, I'm just going to read this and then we're going to briefly say some things. Some of the stuff that if you've been, if you remember the series, I'm going to say a lot of stuff you heard me say because I think it's important to just repeat that stuff. Repetition is the father of learning or mother, depending on how you heard the phrase. I don't want people to be offended. It's the father of learning to me. But beginning in verses 1, it says this, reading from the CSB translation, and I quote, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, verse 4, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, verse 6, including you who are called by Jesus Christ, verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's introduction. I said that in the first time, this is the most, I think it's the most theological introduction that Paul has in any of his Letters. Paul is a man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And because of some of the things I said 
prior to getting into this passage about the significance, the importance of the location of, and the possibilities that stem from what could happen if people get saved at this church, they leave this church and go to other places, or they share the gospel with people as they're living in their daily, as people are coming to buy goods, to go back home, as they hear the gospel, they believe in Jesus, and as they go home to places where they live where the gospel isn't, and they're able to share what they heard and believed in Rome. So it is very strategic and intentional that Paul says all of this stuff in verses 1 through 7. The challenge for us is we never talk like this. You never say hello like this. You never tweet more than a couple of words or even acronyms. I don't even write laugh out loud, neither do you. You put LOL. So this is a lot to say just to say hello, but it's very strategic. So let's look quickly at what he's done. Because he easily could have said verses 1 and 7, and that would have been sufficient to go into the letter. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful introduction. But he has verses 2 through 6 in there for a purpose. One of the purposes, I believe, is he's laying the foundation early so that you know, okay, he's going he's gonna to talk to us. He wants to make sure that the Christians in this church have a foundation of real truth because they're living in a culture of real lies. And let's just be honest. A lie is very attractive, a lie is a tr- sometimes it's easier and more entertaining to believe a lie. I mean, think about this. We live in a culture of accusation, right? We used to live in a culture that was guilty until proven innocent. Now we live in a culture where you're guilty if someone says you did something. I'm not, ta- I'm not even talking political right now. I'm talking just regular old folk. If someone says something about you and people who don't know you, they believe you did it. They believe you did it. And now it's spreading to anyone. It used to be particular demographics that felt that way. Now it's spreading to everyone. All it takes is someone to put something about you on social media that's negative, and people will buy into it. Some people who know you will defend you and say, no way, and other people will buy into it. You know why? Because it's entertaining. It's entertaining. Lies are entertaining. They're fun. They're fun. And so they live in a culture, this church, of a lot of lies about who, how creation is, who is the God to serve, why people are a particular way. And so Paul is going to, in this letter, do something similar to what I believe Moses did for the Israelites in Genesis through Deuteronomy. You see, when they were in Egypt, the Jews, for 400 years, they were slaves. And all they got was the Egyptian understandings of the world. That's what they knew. They knew that they had a God because when Moses came to the elders of Israel and said that the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they knew that there was a God that they belonged to, but they were so entrenched in Egyptian culture that I believe Moses had to explain to them, how are you the people of God? How does creation really happen? What really went on? Because everyone has a creation narrative, every religion, at least back in that day. Well, Paul is doing the same thing. He's going to explain what this is all about. 
Why are people the way that they are? How are? Why do people act the way that they do? Who is God? How does salvation come? There's tons of statues of gods to worship in Rome. For us, there's tons of, they're not statues anymore. They're, they're technologies and ideas. There's other things to worship that grab our attention. And so he lays this very significant foundation down with stuff like this in verse 2 which he promised beforehand, talking about God, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So he's laying this foundation there like, listen, this Jesus Christ that I'm getting ready to tell you about was promised a long time ago, and he came to to fruition. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Because it's one thing to guess on who's going to win the game Sunday. It's another thing to specifically say that this person's coming, this is what he's going to do, this is how he's going to act, and then 900 years go past and it happens just the way it was said. That's credibility. That's credibility. That's a hard thing to deny. As a matter of fact, many Christians in this room, one of the reasons why we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light to God, why do we believe that is because no one has proven that he isn't yet. Now, maybe people who deny that Jesus is that, but you haven't proven that he's not that. You've heard me say this. People have said to me, we'll prove that God exists. And I said, I will prove to me that he doesn't. I'm not going to, def- I only to prove that God exists. Prove to me that he doesn't because the onus is on you to prove that he doesn't. Jesus, partly why we believe it is because There has been a trajectory, different people who never met him, who wouldn't ever see him in person, said hundreds of years before he came that he's coming and this is what he's going to be like. And if we had time, we'd look at like Isaiah, the end of 52 into chapter 53. We look at Isaiah 7 verses 14 and some other passages, but we don't have time today. But it says, which he was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this is an idea that God is, this is a true idea that God promised to send a son, his son. They didn't know what his name would be except Emmanuel in the Old Testament. They didn't know, but God had promised to send his son, Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David, which is the greatest king to the Jews that they knew of. So here is this reality that he's laying down that what I'm about to tell you about this man is true, not just because I said it, but because there's a historical legacy that proves it. There are people in this room that have gone to something like Ancestry.com. Who's ever done that? Okay, you've done Ancestry.com. What does that do? Ancestry.com is, I haven't used this, but I have a, a buddy. Chris was in here. Chris McNair did his, and he came in excited and showed a bunch of us who he was. And I was like, man, you part Scandinavian? Like, it just, it'll just, it brings all this stuff together and shows you you related to these people and these people and these people and these people. And you 3% Guinea and 8% Nigerian and not 10% Cherokee and 5% Jeep. I mean, you just, all these different things, right? So you, you're all this different stuff, and this is the beauty of it. And it find, you find out who it is and how they do it is amazing. And most people take it as fact as if it's true. Well, this is the Ancestry.com that they're laying down for Jesus Christ. So people can hear this and be like, wow, this is true. He's a descendant of David. If they were around when Jesus was alive and they read this verse, they might remember hearing Hosanna, son of David, as they talked about Jesus Christ. So he's making sure they understand that this is true because God has promised it to be true. And in verse 5, 
He mentions that he receives the responsibility. So when it says, through him we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, it means I was given a responsibility to help people obey him by him. So he gave me a responsibility, this same God that was prophesied, that God sent, that came, that Jesus that I'm about to tell you about in graphic detail, I have a responsibility to him to tell people like yourself to obey him. And so he's laying this out for a lot of reasons. One, because he needs to make sure they have a foundation. Two, because he's anticipating that people will disagree and have some challenge with what he's saying. And so he'll do things like ask questions hypothetically. Philosophically, it's called a diatribe when you almost are talking to a person who's not really there and you're having a conversation with a person, assuming their objections and you're answering them in that manner. And so he will do this a lot in this passage. But one of the greatest things about this, all the theology, the study of God, all the categories in here about before the foundation of the world and God choosing and then election and then prophecy and then all these terms that are really theological that I could point out to you. The greatest thing in this passage is it found in verse seven or the end of six and seven. He says to including you who are also called by Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, you are called by God, called as saints, saints, and loved by God. Now, this letter was written to the Romans, but we don't just look at, this isn't the only letter we have. So we know that this description of them is a description of us. It's a description to people who believe in Jesus Christ. You are, as Nahaliel was saying a few moments ago on the mic, you are someone to God despite what you're going through and how you feel. And your circumstances are not a measure of what God thinks of you in and of itself. They're a means in which God tests us to persevere. We are called as saints And loved by God. That's a fascinating reality, even if it's a tough one to believe at times. It's important for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. One of the things you have to have faith in is not just that he died on the cross for your sins, but you also have to have faith that what he describes you are to him is just as true as that he died on the cross for your sins. So if you have faith that he died on the cross for your sins, but not that you are loved by him and called as a saint, then your faith is off. It's not like, okay, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, but I think he hates me, that he doesn't like me or he's mad at me. Well, the basis of that is what? Because I'm not getting what I want when I pray or this circumstance happened in my life. Well, I would say this, read your Bible. You will not find very many people in the Bible who profess to believe in God and Jesus who didn't suffer along the way. I don't know many people. You got one or two, one person, two people who were taken up and didn't die. You don't see too much suffering in their life. But just about everybody else, including Jesus himself. 
In verses 8 through 15, this is Paul is setting them up for the, for the big uppercut. So this is sort of Paul's way of just saying, let's read this real quick. First, I thank my God for you. This is verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. This is an interesting statement because Paul hasn't been all over the world. So what does he mean by in the world? Like if he said, man, this is all over the world, you would think like there's technology, right? So we know I can just go online and find out what's happening in Russia right now to some degree. We could all do that. When riots happen in different parts of the country, I can open up an app and watch it live. We can see things like that. So all over the world to us is different to all over the world for them. It was all over the world where the churches were that was being reported that there's a church in Rome, the city, the ungodly city where there's no one would think a church would be there. There's a church in Rome. I said this when I did this message. I said that if LeBron James, it was clear he was a Christian, if he professed to be a believer, almost every pastor and every Christian would get the LeBron jersey and use it as an illustration. I guarantee the Sunday after it was clear he was a believer, not only would the pastor have on his shoes, he would do, every dunk would be he did that for God's glory, right? <laughs> because it would be amazing that LeBron is a Christian. Isn't that how we act when we find out someone famous is a Christian? Oh my gosh, they said, they said we, I want to thank God. Well, so do a lot of people. I mean, James says, you believe that there's one God, good, so does the devil. But we're so quick to give people this, this, this credibility because they said that they believe in God. And so if that happened, it would be insane. Every evangelical news media would be reporting and trying to get an interview with LeBron James. We'd all be excited. Wow, he's a believer. Well, that's how they were when they found out that there's a church in Rome. Like, you got to be kidding me. There's a church in Rome? Rome, Rome? The Rome with the big statue, with the, with the art and all that, the, 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 they kill people over there? Where they get drunk in the streets and prostitution is everywhere and there's certain neighborhoods that smell so bad that no one goes over there except the people that have to? That, there's this church over there? Phew. Pray for them. That's what it was like. So he's, news is spreading that there's a church there. Verse 9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son. I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now succeed, at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So here he's saying, look, I don't know you people. I know that there's a church. I don't know you. I've been praying that I get to come there to, to encourage you and then to be encouraged by you. He says in verse 12, that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He wants to be encouraged. Like, wow, there's a church in Rome. He wants to come see it because he feels the responsibility to be the person who was given the responsibility by God to plant churches like this. And so here he wants to come to this church, see them, and encourage them to be encouraged by them. He wants to be encouraged by the fact that people are believing in Jesus in a culture that he knows and they know have no desire to, and don't even care that they believe. They will probably mock them for their belief based on particular things that they believe. And he wants to come there and say, let me be encouraged by that. Wow, there's a church here. There are Christians here who believe in Jesus in Rome. But he also knows, I want to encourage you by teaching you some things 
that you need to know in order to persevere. Because a lot of people profess to believe in Jesus, but, but not all those people remain in Jesus. I've known plenty of people, we all do, who loved the Lord at some point and now deny him. Or at the very best will say, hey, I don't, I'm not mad at Christianity. Like, it was helpful for me. It was a good stepping stone for me to figure out what I really believe. Well, in eternity, that stepping stone is going to sink when you step on it. And unfortunately, they don't know that. He knows that they're living in this culture, so he wants to encourage them, be encouraged by them. So he says in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I may have a fruitful ministry among you just as I've had among the rest of the Gentiles. So you see, this is a Gentile church. He sees this as mostly a non-Jewish church because he's saying, look, I've had a, I, I want to have a fruitful ministry. Like I've been with people who are Gentiles like you, and there's been a lot of good stuff that's happened, and I want to do that among you as well. So he considers them a church that's largely Gentile. And he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. So here is him saying, look, here's my introduction, theological, Jesus is real. Here's a proof of his reality. I'm given a responsibility. I cannot wait to see you guys. I'm on my way. I want to encourage you because I know where you live. It's difficult. It's a difficult place. It's no less difficult today. No less difficult today. To believe in Jesus today is very difficult. And when I say believe, I don't mean to agree with Christianity or to believe in the Christian God as sort of a mental ascent. When I say it's tough to believe in Christianity, believe in God, what I mean is it's tough to live in, 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 in pursuit of doing what the Bible commands you to do. Because you don't live, and if you're in college, there's nothing at the college that you're at that promotes Jesus, except other people. If you live in a dorm, they ain't promoting Jesus. They're not. Hey, you want to do a Bible study? Huh? It's a blessing when some do. That's when you get excited. The Lord is working. Why? Because I knocked on 50 doors and one opened. Praise God. There's nothing about any of us who work in the federal government Federal government has laws against you being a Christian. Give your political reasons for why you disagree with something like that's like abortion or something like that. Watch you, watch the trouble you get into. The system is set up because this is not a God glorifying, Christ exalting culture. So when people say that's what I'm going to believe and live for, you have we have a tougher life. Everyone has a tough life, but we have a tougher one. Now, for some of you, it may not have been tested as much as others, but it will be. It will be. There is no way that Jesus is going to allow people to believe in him and that not be tested. Because you don't know what you believe until you are tested. You don't know. You think you know. You don't know until you're tested if you truly believe in Jesus. Paul knows that, so he's excited to see them. And then he makes this claim in verses 16 and 17, which 
which is really the, the, the whole point of his life and really this letter that he's written to this church is really making sure that these two verses are seen, understood, and lived by. So he says this in verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Language is intentional. Why would you have to be? What are you talking about? You're not ashamed of it. You know why he's saying that? Because people will try to shame you for believing the gospel. They will try to shame you for believing the gospel. If you haven't experienced that yet, you will. You know what I would say this? I would say if you haven't experienced it yet, it's because you don't put that out there. You're a good, quiet Christian. You don't put it out there. You put it out there, people will try to shame you for believing in Jesus. Or people will be okay if you believe it as long as you don't really believe it. So I guess so people don't care if you go to church as long as you still go to the club. They don't care. They don't care if you high on Christ as long as you high on weed or whatever other drug. They don't mind that because even they know, okay, you don't really, really believe, though. You don't really believe, though. Years ago, when Kanye West put out a song called Jesus Walks, that song blew up for him. It was on the radio and everywhere. And Christians were dumb enough to think that this dude was a Christian and were paying him $30,000 to perform at churches. This Bama was going in churches, doing that song, and then leaving and getting 30 grand churches. If I was a pastor of that church, I'd have choked him. I'd have made him prove that Jesus walks by him seeing him after he left, after doing one song at my church for $30,000. Jesus walks, you get ready to see if he does. You better call out to him because I'm getting, give me that check back. One song for 30 grand, please. Tell Donna, call the police. Uh, Donna, yeah. But you know why that song blew up? You know why it blew up and why it was on the radio? Because they knew that he doesn't really believe in Jesus, though. That's why they knew that. Because if you really listen to the song, it don't got nothing to do with Christ. Nothing. They knew he don't really, really believe in Jesus. There ain't no church in Rome, Rome with him. So people are okay with that. So he's not ashamed. Because he ain't really with Jesus. If he really would believe, they'd have put him on Christian radio. AM station. AM station. We'd have been here like, Jesus walks. Nobody else would have known it. He did it to prove he could put a song about Jesus on the radio, and he did it. But he didn't do it because he believed in Jesus. Because when you really believe, people will shame you. What? You don't have sex? Are you serious? You don't drink? You don't do all this stuff? Are you serious? I kid you not. Every time I do a wedding, the people, I'm going to have friends who are not believers, they're shocked that there are people who are still virgins that get married. Blown away. They think I'm joking. 
I have to convince people I'm serious. Then I just have to be like, man, dude, what's... Be quiet, man. I just sometimes just be like, man, forget it. I'm not trying to convince you. Like, they think I'm not, they, they can't imagine that there are people who have not had sex, who have not engaged in anything like that, still living in this world. And because many people have been so ashamed of it that they've gone against the grain of it. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's using his language literally and specifically and strategically because if you believe in the gospel, you're going to be shamed, at least the attempt to. So it's easy to be like, hey, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm low key. Low key with it. Well, these two verses are the theme of this book and his life. And this is important. Because when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I want to read to you just a couple of accounts of things that he went through. Okay, this is prior to this letter. When he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, here's what, he's, here's what this means for him. Here's what happened to him in Acts chapter 9 before he was actually a Christian. This is how it started for him. Here's what the Lord said about him. Talking to another man named Ananias, the Lord said to this man, but the Lord said to him, go, for this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Jesus chose him to suffer for his name. I would submit to you this morning, if you are a Christian, and if you're a Christian, like you really believe in Jesus and you, then you were chosen by him to suffer for his name's sake. Suffer. He says this in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 10. He's writing to his young disciple, a young, uh, his son in the faith is a man named Timothy. And he's writing, and he writes two letters to Timothy. And in the second letter, verses 10 and 11, he says, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and the sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. Those are shorthand for cities that he went to, that he was opposed. People hated him because he believed in Jesus. You know why this is important when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? You know why this is important to know? Because oftentimes people believe in Jesus and they imagine sort of an easy life sort of a life where God, just because he's God and you believe in Jesus now, that you're just going to have sort of this life that kind of just stays pretty even-keeled, maybe a something a little here and there, and then you just go to heaven where there's an eternal fun. That's not the right gospel. That's a wrong gospel. That's not a biblical gospel. And this is, this is, this is, this is why the, the gospel is... You know, if you think about this, think about this. Most of the things we struggle with about God are not things that he promised. They're things that we want him to do, right? You weren't promised a lot of this stuff. You weren't promised to be married. You weren't promised to have children. You weren't promised to get a promotion. You weren't promised to own a home. You weren't promised to graduate and be, uh, you know, cum laude. You weren't promised the things that you want to have. You're not, we weren't promised these things. You know, one of the things that's clearly promised in the scripture, though, is suffering. That's a biblical promise for everyone who believes. This is why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, take up your lazy boy. You know, 
Take up the most comfortable pillow you got and relax and watch me just guide your life with all ease. And that's what heaven's for. We're supposed to get to heaven and be like, oh, man, when me and my wife were dating, we came out of this culture where it was really weird in how you get married. And it was just stuff that we just didn't do. So we were just like, hey, look, man, I ain't doing that. Like we'd walk into a room, guys over here, girls over there. So I'd be like, all right, I'm walking over here. I identify as a girl. I'm talking to them. I'm going over here. I'm joking when I say I identify as a girl, actually. <laughs> just remember the culture. So, but it was just weird. And then I would talk to them. I remember one time I was talking to her for like 15 minutes, and I walked her to her car. And then a dude came to me when I came back in and said, hey, bro, you got a minute? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, hey, man, did you think you were guarding her heart when you did that? And I said, did what? And he said, did you think, were you guarding her heart when you did that? And I said, whose heart? And he said, Betsy's. And I said, I'm supposed to guard it like how? And he said, well, you know, you were talking to her for 15 minutes and stuff. And it was, I was like, hey, bro, like, how are you going to get married? Like, what you think the Lord is going to be a burning bush? He'd be like, there she is in the red dress. Like, okay. I was like, what are you talking about? And he corrected me. I said, listen, man, Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your own heart with all vigilance. Now, I understood what he meant, but I was like, man, I'm talking to her. I walked her to a car because I'm trying to be a gentleman. And yeah, I like her. You know what I'm saying? I ain't gonna, you know. I want nobody else to walk her to her car, you know? Let's keep it a hundo around here, you know? But it was just weird. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? It was this weird thing. And so we, 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 we had this pressure that to be a certain way and to walk through this, this process, it, just, it, just, it was just wrong. And we just couldn't understand it. And it came from a book, and now the dude is undoing everything he said in the book. And he's a friend of mine, so I didn't choke him. But the reality was, there was, there was we, were being we were shamed because we didn't do it the way they did it. Now, we were just proud enough to not care about it. Well, I was, at least. But there's a reality. There's, there's a reality that we live in a world where struggle's going to happen. And in our relationship, we had a lot of trial. A lot of trial. So when we finally got married, we were like, man, this is so much better. That's it. We loved it. It was totally different from the dating experience that we had. It was so much better. Well, that's what heaven is for. Heaven is when we say, this is so much better, not here. Not here. Here, you're going to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Listen to what happened to Paul. This is what it says. This is what he says in describing himself in 2 Corinthians 11. There are people saying he's not really a true Christian, a true apostle. And he says, are they servants of Christ? The people accuse him. I'm talking like a madman. He says, I'm a better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. So five times he received 39 lashes on his back and lower legs. Let's do the math. Five times 39. Or it's easy to do five times 40. That's 200. And then minus the five. So 195 times he was beaten in his back by whips. My mom used to hit me one time with a belt as a kid, and I was good. 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. <laughs> yeah, have you ever been hit with a rock? <laughs> when I was a kid, 
You know those like those little small, like really those bouncy balls you get from like the little uh, bubble gum thing, and then you put a quarter in, and you get those little bouncy balls. At one time, my brother threw one at me. I was about eight, and I thought he threw a rock because it was so hard and it hurt. And I cried and cried until I found out it was a, a ball instead of a rock, and I tried to toughen up because I didn't want to cry because I got hit by a ball, but it hurt bad. A rock hurts way more. He said on this occasion, he said, three times I was shipwrecked. He said, three times I was beaten. Once I received a stoning. So people stood there and threw stones at him trying to kill him. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent the night and day in the open sea. So with no, no confidence that he's going to survive. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. So when he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying I've suffered for this. I've suffered to believe this. Many of us are not going to have this resume of things that will suffer. But the question needs to be asked. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Not on Sunday right here. Not in D group on Wednesday. But when you're at your job, when you're at school. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Do you realize that if you believe in Jesus truly, that part of what you signed up for was suffering? You know, at the beginning of today, we honored those who serve in the military. And I'm very grateful for everyone who stood up. My brother served. My nephew's in there now. I'm very grateful for that. Our country has done a great service since 9-11 in acknowledging men who serve in roles of police department and fire, fire department and the military. Because prior to that, I think people didn't really have as high regard as they do now. So I'm very grateful for that. But if I'm honest, as a parent, I don't know if I want my kids to go in the military. You know what I want them to do? I do want them to go as long as they don't have to go to war. As long as they don't go to war. When people go to war, that's when all this, oh, my gosh, I, what's happening? I don't want you to do it. It's like, well, my, this is what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to go there, go to basic training, sit, on a, sit in an army base for a couple of years and then get the benefits from the government for doing so. I signed up. And so if I go to war, I have to go to this country and fight. I remember in the first Iraq war, my brother went. My mom was freaking out. I said, Ma, that's what he has to do that. Don't talk to me like that. All right. I'm her husband. I'm her son. All right. That's what he signed up for. If you are a Christian, this is what you signed up for. You signed up for. You signed up for. These are powerful words. Paul talks about the righteousness of God in verse 17 is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I'm not going to get into the debate about what that means. There's a lot of people that think what that means. Basically, Paul is saying this, the gospel is the way that people stand before God and are given a not guilty verdict from him, even though we're actually guilty because we've sinned against God. That's what, that's, what this, that's what he's saying in this. And that's the gospel. Jesus died on the cross 
so that those who believe in him will stand before God and be told not guilty in that great courtroom, that Revelation 20, 11 through 15, that courtroom, will be said not guilty. Not because you're not guilty, but because you put faith in Jesus Christ. And so we get his not guilty given to us. So Paul lays out this foundation. And once he says that, the rest of the letter from here on out, from verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, the rest of it is him proving his point that salvation can only be found in faith in Jesus Christ alone. It can't be found in anything else. So in 18 through 32, what he does is he highlights people who reject God based on God revealing himself through creation and humanity, all these different things. They say, look, these people still choose to reject God and there are consequences for doing so. So alone, your mental, intellectual ability alone cannot save you. So we are products of an era called the Enlightenment in the 17th century, 18th century, the age of reason. You may not know it, but this is the culture we live in. This culture we live in. I'm going to ask Carl to bring this up in one of the, in one of the Sunday school things. Let him explain to you. This is, we live in the age of reason. This is why people think, well, what's, this is why you hear this language today. Well, what's your truth? There's no the truth, right? Remember when it used to be the truth? Now it's your truth. Yeah, man, speak your truth. <laughs> that's, the, that's the wildest thing I've ever heard. Because what if my truth is I want to kill you? If there's no truth and everyone has their own, oh, man, we can do anything we want as long as it's true to me. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But it's the, that's, that's coming from the Enlightenment. This is the 21st century Enlightenment. Now it's your truth. So no matter what you tell me, good, that's true for you. You know, I tell people, look, man, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong about what I'm saying, if I'm wrong, what do I lose? I live a decent life, raise my kids a certain way. Okay, what do I lose? But if you're wrong, if you're wrong, what do you lose? What do you lose, bro? Everything. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. It's a tough gamble. It's a tough gamble. It's not one I'm willing to make. So he describes these people as people who are gambling with their intellectual ability and their rejection of God, even though he's revealed himself enough in creation, not saving faith at least, but at least some acknowledgement that he exists. There's no such thing as atheists or agnostics. There's no such thing. Every atheist believes his intellectual ability is God. There's no such thing as atheists. Everyone believes in God. It doesn't matter which God do you believe in. I happen to believe in Jesus. You happen to believe in your intellectual ability. There's no such thing as an atheist. <laughs> Every atheist that died was a believer the minute they woke up after death and saw Jesus. But it's too late. So he describes these people in the, in the rest of chapter one, and it's important to understand that he's laying a foundation that everyone has to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So he gives sort of this, this, this description of a group of people that are rejecting God, and he lists a whole bunch of sinful categories. He lists a whole bunch of sins at the end of verses 26 through 32. 
a bunch of them. But there's one sin that he doesn't mention. There's one sin that he doesn't mention that he brings up in chapter 2. He lists all these sins at the end of chapter 1, but he doesn't cover this one sin. He doesn't cover this one, but he does bring it up in chapter 2. Chapter 2, he says this, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. So all of a sudden now, all these lists, take, take a moment, look at verses 18 through, through 32, particularly 26 through 32, and look at all the sins there. You see judging and hypocrisy missing. But in chapter 2, he says, okay, you heard that list, and you're like, yeah, those people, I wouldn't do that stuff. These people deserve to go to hell. Then he says, oh, you who don't do any of that, but judge people that do, you're in the same boat. You're in the same boat. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you would escape God's judgment? This is an important passage for us because there are people in this room who are very moral. Very moral. And so there are particular sins you haven't given yourself over to. Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Praise God that you've never been addicted to heroin or any of those types of drugs. Praise God that you, even in the face of fear, tell the truth and never struggle with lying. Praise God that you're just joyful and don't complain, or that you don't get drunken, or you're not a prostitute, or you're not sexually immoral, or you're not, hey, there's a list of sins that all of us can say, I don't do that, I haven't done that. And the temptation is to judge others and be impatient or ambivalent towards other struggles. See, when you don't struggle with certain things, you know what you think? You tend to think that people that do struggle with things that you don't need to just knock it off. Just knock it off. Like they just, as if people just wake up every day and say, I can't wait to jump into this. There's no such thing as a switch. And if it is, it's too high to click. So there's a process. Why do some people struggle with stuff and other people used to and don't? It's a process. And it's easy to judge people who, don't, who do things that you don't. Instead of thinking, man, praise God, let me be a means of grace to this person. Not let me tell you what you need to do. But let me come alongside and help if possible. It's easy to judge people who don't do the same things as us. And God says from that perspective, you know what? You're right. You don't do all of that stuff. Praise God you grew up in a Christian home and you haven't done none of the stuff that I was sharing in my testimony. But if you judge the people that do, then you get the same destination as the people who did all those things. Because God is, he's faithful. There's no impartiality, no favoritism. Hypocritical, self-righteous judgment to God is the same thing as doing all of that. He just didn't include them in that list, but he includes it in his list. And so he warns here, don't be like that. Don't do that. That's not going to be helpful. Basically, what he's saying is every one of you who judges all the sin that others do, you're actually worse because you do some of the same things anyway. 
James says if you break one commandment, you've broken the whole law. So maybe your marriage is in a better place than another couple's marriage. Don't judge their marriage, though. Don't judge their marriage. Because you know what? Three years from now, it might be your marriage. It might be your marriage. Don't judge the person who struggles with a lot of anxiety now because it's not, you don't struggle with that? Five years from now, something might happen to you struggling with anxiety. That stuff that you thought was not a big deal and people should just not do this. It's as simple as meditate on this passage because it worked for you. Wait till you experience some depression in your life. Wait till that kicks in. And all of a sudden now, reading the Bible is not fun. That book that was full of all color and life is gray and cold and dusty. And it doesn't seem like anything you read matters at all. There's a warning. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful how we judge. Because God sees that as worthy of the same judgment of the sins that you don't do, that you judge others for. And I believe God put this here because he knows the natural way that people respond to a description of other people's sinfulness is with self-righteous judgment. That's just easy. It's just easy. If you've ever said, I'd never do that. Even the world says what? Never say never, right? I think there was a James Bond movie or something title. This is a good proverbial wisdom. Never say never because you have no idea what's going to happen in your life that is going to challenge you to see if you really believe what you say. Spoiler alert, none of us do as well. Best advice I ever got as an early pastor, early preacher, was this. You always preach a little better than you live. And I thought, yep. This is why I'm not ashamed or afraid to say I struggle with this too. I struggle with it too. I'm, I'm teaching it, but I got to live it the same. I'm not afraid to say that because it's real. Next week, we'll pick up here and plow through the review. Romans is a crazy book, and I have no idea why I said we'd do it. And many of you were excited, and now you're wishing we were going back to the messages we taught two weeks ago. I'm just kidding, sort of. I will pick up where we left off in chapter 2 next week. Hopefully the Lord will bless us. Let me pray. Father, even though you have said in your word that we are loved by you and called as saints, you still have verses in your Bible that, that will challenge us. Not because it's, we're not loved by you or called as saints, but because you want to make sure you warn us appropriately 
so that we're aware because it's easy because you have, you have done the work. You, you, you sent Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, but then he died on the cross and received the punishment for all of us who do sin. And then you've given us your spirit to help us, to remind us to live for you. But you don't just control us. You give us choices. You give us responsibilities. You, you give us the responsibility to make decisions. And we fail sometimes. And you know that. You know we would. That's why you sent Jesus. We're not talking about perfection, but direction. You've given us choices and we fail sometimes. And when we do, you say you're forgiven because you have faith in Jesus. But we don't always fail, though. By your grace, you give us victory at times. We, we do resist temptation. We do fight through and persevere through different trials that we experience. You do, we do feel your presence sometimes when we feel alone. You do bring joy when we're disappointed at things that we didn't get or things we haven't gotten yet that we want. Your spirit is active in us and it helps us to continue, continue on for your glory and our good. But it doesn't come without just exhortations and reminders of your love for us and our identity in you. It comes with warnings about particular activities that we're, we can be prone to. It's easy to be judgmental of things that we don't do until we find ourselves doing those things. I know I'm guilty of boasting about things that I don't do and that I've failed. So I pray that you would, your warnings are not the absence of your love, but a further description of it. As I would warn my children not to run out into the street because it would kill them. If a car came, you warn us through your word not to judge others and in other ways that you warn us so that we don't run out into the streets of our own thinking and actions and activities and attitudes and end up getting hit by the proverbial car of our sinfulness or, that, or create habits and patterns that seem more difficult to stop and break. So Lord, even though we, we are called and loved, by you, called as saints, loved by you. But that's our primary identity now as we become Christians. If we are Christians, we are not exempt and we still need to be reminded that we must fight to the end. We fight to the end. We fall sometimes. We get mad at you sometimes. We're disappointed with you sometimes. We feel forsaken by you sometimes but we get back up and we fight to believe. We don't run away from you or the church or whatever it is. We, we fight. And so I pray that you would do that in each of us who are here this morning, whether they are committed to this church or if they're just visiting. If they profess to believe in you, Jesus, I pray that you would renew their strength in you. And if, it's not, if they don't go to this church, then may they go to a church that will encourage them in you and encourage them to continue to fight and to not be ashamed. 
And if it means that we suffer emotionally, psychologically, financially, or physically, then may we do it to your glory and with the brothers and sisters that we're with around us. Lord, meet us this Wednesday night as we make a decision, as we choose eternity, as we choose to come together and gather together. May we learn more what it means to be dependent on you. I pray that if possible, that our room is filled if possible. Thank you for your mercy and grace towards us, in spite of us. And as we now transition to remembering what it is you've done for us, may we do so remembering that we are called as saints and loved by you. And that's not something that we can know by experience all the time. Sometimes we have to believe it by faith. So this morning, Lord, if we need to believe by faith that we're called as saints and loved by you, then may it be so. And if you are convicting any of us, if you are helping us see that maybe we're the self-righteous, judgmental people in your word, then may you only bring that up as you do to show us what you've saved us from and that we ought not to be that way so that we can move past it, go after it for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.